This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SPOILER5. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Before Midnight, the new Richard Linklater film starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Joining me here in the Slate New York office is David Hagland. Hi, David. Hi, Dana. You are the editor of Browbeat, Slate's culture blog. That's right. And a frequent co-spoiler. Yes, happy to be here again. And we're also joined, being patched in from the D.C. Slate Bureau by an infrequent co-spoiler, David Plotz. Hi, David. Hi, guys. You are the editor of Slate, and you specifically requested to get in on this conversation. And we're going to talk about why that is in, in just a minute. But first, I always like to get just a very quick reaction. Recommend this movie or not? Absolutely. How could you not go see this movie? See the first two first, but then go see this one. Agree, David? Oh, uh, absolutely. Completely, yes. So I want to hear also both about both of your histories with these. I think more than I do, you guys have some intense personal autobiographical identification with this with this whole Before series, which to recap, if people aren't familiar with the series, is Before Sunrise from 1994, uh, Before Sunset from nine years ago, 2004, and now Before Midnight. So let's start with you, Hagland. What's your, what's your history with the series? Well, the first one came out um, the year that I met my girlfriend uh, back in high school. And uh, the second one came out uh, about a year after we had moved in together. So somehow they have assumed this deeply personal kind of place in our lives so that when this one came out, uh, it was not an option for me to see this one by myself. The two of us were going, I, you know, I would wait till it came out in theaters if I had to so we could see it together. Um, I, I, I probably will write about that for Slate this week. I think there's a way in which these movies, um, you know, they – they both speak to us kind of personally because of certain details about our relationship, but also I think they capture fundamental moments in almost any romantic relationship, and we can get into that a, a bit. But I, I think there's there's a way in which um, we just both responded so intensely to kind of the arc of the you know Celine and Jesse romance. Did you see the first one on a date? I, so, no, she saw it before I did, and I actually – my memory – I'm going to check with an old high school friend about this. My memory is that I tried to see it on a double date with this friend of mine and and, and two uh, girls who then – I don't know if it was sold out, but somehow we got there and they decided they were going to see Legends of the Fall instead. And we refused and ended up seeing Little Women. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do some research and figure out exactly what happened. But it took me a while to catch up with the, with the first one. But nonetheless, even having not seen it together, you felt like it was your movie sort of. Right. There was a way in which – because, I mean, it was so – of the moment, you know. I mean, even I was talking about it with with my girlfriend this week. The way Julie Delpy is dressed in the first one, with that flannel shirt, you know, tied around tied around her waist. I mean, there's something very mid '90s, and as a you know 16 year old, it somehow felt like, oh, this is this is who we want to be. These kind of you know smart. Uh, literate people walking around the European capital having these intense conversations. It, it, I mean, it was sort of aspirational in a way, I suppose. So interesting. It's really kind of generational, too, because I was slightly older and just in my late 20s rather than early 20s when I saw it. And I think I thought I was a little bit too sophisticated for it at the time. And to, to this day, the, the first one is my least favorite. But we'll get to that. So so what about you, Plots? What's your history with this series? Well, it's funny. My life is is exactly congruent with uh, Celine and Jesse's in the sense that I am I'm exactly the same age as Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy uh, as is my wife I saw it uh, I saw the first movie right when it came out as a 23 or 24 year old right around the time I met uh, my soon to be wife although she she and I have no history with this movie at all and then 
I saw uh, before sunset again in my early 30s. And she, we must have seen it together. But it, again, it was only, I, my, my relationship with it is profound. She has no relationship to it at all. I have a, I have a heartfelt love affair with Julie Delpy going on. Um, but Hannah plays no part in it. And then this movie, again, I went to see it by myself in part because she just couldn't arrange it because we have too many children. Um, but I don't think she feels a great loss. But my, I have a, I don't have any identification with uh, Jesse, who I, who I, who I don't much like. But uh, Celine has has been this, you know, love object of mine for many many years, and it's it's great to um, to fall in love once again. Right. Yeah. Now you get to revisit her and see what it would be like if you had been with her all of this time, right? Because as is revealed in the first few minutes of this movie, and this is a spoiler special, so we might as well get into it. The two of them are together nine years later. There's a great tricky reveal at the beginning where the first thing we see is Ethan Hawke as Jesse saying goodbye to his son who seems to be about 10 or 11 at an airport in Greece. And they have a conversation about how much the mother of the son hates Jesse. And so I was asking the question, so is it Julie Delpy? Did everything fall apart? And didn't you guys assume at first that 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 might be the outcome, that he was a guy living alone in Europe after having screwed up his relationship? See, this is where it helps to have just seen the the previous two because um, he calls him Hank. And that's the son that he mentions in Before Sunset. So I knew right away that this was the son that he'd had with his previous wife, who he talks about. You know, he's still married to her in Before Sunset. So it, it fell into my place in my mind pretty quickly that, oh, okay, so they're divorced. She, you know, his, this previous wife, whom we've never met and who we don't meet in this one, um, that they're not getting along. He's in Europe, so presumably he's with Celine. Um, I sort of picked up on that, having just having just seen Before Sunset a couple days before. Right, yeah. If you're, if you're caught up on your continuity, you, you would catch that with the sun. But I was completely surprised at the reveal when he walked outside of the airport and there was Julie Delpy waiting for him by the car. And I think that was the first moment that I got a little bit teary in this movie, especially when there's a second reveal as he gets in the car. The camera pans to the back seat and they have two adorable sleeping twin girls in the back seat. Who are truly the most adorable children I have ever seen. Where do you think they got those two girls? I don't know. I looked at their name at the end. I didn't recognize them, but they're fantastic and they look just like Julie Delpy's daughters would look, right? Like these two blonde angels. It's interesting how the children are used in the movie. It's really sort of French because they're really seen and not heard. They say a couple lines in one scene and then they essentially disappear for the rest of the movie. Although obviously the fact that they have these children is a central element in the story. Yeah, it felt very European, not only with the kids, but also that dinner conversation in the first half. So they're on vacation in Greece, and the first half they're— Crete. They're in Crete. In Crete, okay. Um, so, you know, uh, on this on this island, and they're with this uh, older writer, and I can't remember now, is he, is he American? He's an English-language author. He's English. English. I think he's supposed he's, to be British, yeah. Yeah. So, and they're sort of staying with him. He has this— villa. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but it's a lovely, idyllic place. And one of the extended scenes in the first half of the movie is this dinner party, which is a lot about sex. And that felt very European to to me, too, the way that, you know, you have these, you have the much older man, uh, an older woman, uh, Selene and Jesse, another couple about their age and this much younger couple. And they're all talking very kind of frankly and even lewdly uh, and kind of veering from that towards very intellectual that seemed like a very consciously Eric Romer-esque scene, right? I mean, it was trying to be like one of those scenes in Eric Romer where the whole – the exposition is all laid out through these discursive conversations. It was also really Socratic, right? They're sitting there in Greece talking about death and sex and life and love. And that scene had some great parts. But I will say I think that that was one of the weaker – anything that wasn't just a two-shot of, of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy 
to me was was one of the weaker parts of the movie. I thought that dinner scene went on a little bit long and that the conversations were a little bit schematic, right? We had to see the young lovers who fell in love in a way somewhat analogous with the, you know, the young lovers of Before Sunrise and the old lady who's lost her husband talking about his death. And it all felt just a tiny bit too on the nose. Would you guys agree with that? Uh, totally. It, it, it absolutely is. Socratic is a great word also with that, which is the, the sense that this is a very formulaic discussion um, designed to to uh, to present us with ideas about about um, sex and love and marriage, but it isn't actually the way these conversations would unfold, or you would never get that group of people that neatly conversing in that particular way. Right. It wasn't naturalistic, whereas the scenes, the long takes, which we want to talk about the, the framing as well, but the, all the long takes with just uh, Celine and Jesse walking along talking felt to me completely naturalistic, to the extent that it was hard to believe that they weren't improvised. As Linklater has insisted, they were not. They were 100% scripted. Yeah, I think you said that none of the, the movies are improvised. But this thing about the conversations gets at kind of a, a theory that I have about these movies and even about Linklater's movies more generally, which is that you know the conversations are gripping because of the emotional subtext and not because of the content of what, of what they're saying. And, and I think that these movies and, and a few of his others are at their best when he seems aware of that. It's not really about you know the ideas that either one of them is sharing, but what is happening between them as they share those ideas. But every so often, he seems to kind of fall in love with the actual content of their conversations, and that becomes what's important. And and it, you know his movies tend to fall more flat. I think when that happens, the worst example of that, I think, being Waking Life, is probably my least favorite of his movies. And it seems like the kind of philosophy of it, he is really kind of indulging in that one. Although, he has you, that side. You, Sorry, but go if ahead. you watch in, in Before Sunrise, that that uh, philosophical college dorm bullshitting really works because they're of an age. And, right, it's yeah. and, and the, the conversations they have in that movie, I feel, really, really work on that level because that, those were the conversations you have when you're 23 years old and you meet some hottie in Europe. Right, you but they do, were, yeah. you do try to impress her with whatever whatever um, lines you can use on her. I'm right. really seeing now why the first one left me not cold. I enjoyed it. I thought it was sweet, but I think I sort of uh, looked at it in a condescending, patronizing way when I first saw it. I was 28, and I think I felt like I had aged out of that demographic of URL past dorm room bullshit. And and I, I remember just sort of judging the movie on this very personal level of I've had more romantic nights with smarter guys than that. <laughs> and because I myself wouldn't have wanted to walk around Vienna all night with that bullshitting g- Ethan Hawke character, I think I sort of judged Julie Delpy for doing the same. And now, rewatching it, as I just did, in order to write on this one, I see that it's all about that. It's all about these two kind of immature, ambitious, striving young people. Right. And actually, the one moment in the first one that, so having just watched it again, it, it, it takes on this depth that it, it didn't have for me before, yes. because you know yes. what's coming, and suddenly it's Well, just... it almost seems like a memory that's been constructed yeah. by the later movie. I think the three movies, that they each get better as they go along, and that this last one, I mean, I haven't actually delivered my own judgment on it yet, right. but I think this last one is basically brilliant. I mean, with a couple of caveats like that that dinner scene being a little bit hokey, I think it's its an incredible work. And that is largely because of the, the, the pickups and the callbacks and the way it incorporates the past. But one thing I actually loved on rewatching the movies is how much the first movie in particular prefigures the second and third, which is that the first movie, they talk exactly about what will happen, what would happen if we were together after 10 years or 20 years, explicitly they say after 10 years or 20 years, and that the, the way we would become boring to each other or the things that are charming now would become uh, annoying after all that time. And that – I'm, I'm sure they made that first movie without the, the premonition that they were going to make a second and third 10 and 20 years later. But it, 
they work very, very well if you see it. It's like you should – you know, these indie movie theaters should do what they do with Star Wars, which is, you know, show these things back to back to back, you know, one night on a Saturday night so that you can experience the whole relationship. Completely. And unlike a Star Wars marathon, it wouldn't even be grueling. These movies are fairly <laughs> short. They're very easy to watch. They really flow into each other. I sat down last night with the first two thinking, well, I'll take a look at a couple scenes and refresh my memory. I ended up watching both of them back to back because it was a complete pleasure. And can I, can I just take a brief side note, which is that one of the wonderful things about this is the visual porn of it, that they – the. I know it's a cheap shot. You know, you have the first movie is Vienna lit in the magic hour. The second movie is Paris and the same. And this one is Crete. Uh, similarly, beautiful, beautiful places shot the most attractive light you can find. And frankly, it's just nice to watch that. It's just very pleasant and serene and calming to just watch really attractive people walking through a beautiful landscape. Completely agree. To the, to the extent that for the first 20 minutes of this, I was a little bit afraid that it was going to be sort of Nancy Myers style lifestyle porn, you know, especially when they were eating the delicious food in the Greek villa. And it just all seemed so pleasurable. And I thought, is this just going to sort of be like pretty white people enjoying themselves. But then I think when, when we got to the nitty-gritty of the relationship, we really went to some dark places. Well, and in part because they took it to a hotel room. It, it seemed like it's interesting that you say that, David, because now it, it, it highlights, I think, this you know very deliberate, clearly, decision that they make that so the first half, it's an impossibly idyllic place. I mean, it's beautiful, um, even more so, I think, than the first two. Partly, the, you know, the first two are, uh, are urban. Uh, in the middle of cities, and here they are on a coast and sitting by the beach and, you know, having this lovely meal. But then, uh, you know, the other couple that's their age that's staying with this older writer has has gotten them a hotel room that's supposed to be this kind of romantic treat for them to get them away from their kids for a little while. And then they – I mean, it's the second half, I think, basically, of the movie. They spend arguing in this hotel room, and it's it's really antiseptic, it, it, you know, and it's claustrophobic. I mean, it's it's the first time that the, that the movie has done that. They're sort of stuck in this space that could be anywhere. It doesn't even really – it's not like it's this, you know, homey – Crete Hotel. It just it could be a hotel, in, which she complains about at one point. Yeah, and 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 it you know it seems like a, a maybe in a in a way he you know they wanted to very much get away from that. Okay, you don't have the kind of pleasure of of watching them move through this beautiful space. Now they're stuck in a room and it's getting tense and they're arguing. David, let me stop you right there for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They source their clips from around the world and put them at your fingertips, and they add 10,000 new ones each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock is a complete offering. They have excellent customer service with dedicated reps and 24-hour support throughout the week, and they have flexible pricing. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just start your account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save the video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER5, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER5. The spoiler special thanks Shutterstock for their support. So back to Before Midnight. So when we get to the second half and they're trapped in this hotel room where they've been sent for the night to have a romantic evening, which, of course, is is fated to, to fall apart and turn into fighting, let's talk a little bit about that part and what's revealed about the characters and kind of the choreography of the argument. Because at that point, it really does become, as you say, an enclosed space with the two of them, almost like theater. Yeah, it, it's, it's like a play. And one of the things that struck me about this movie in general and certainly their fight is how much more uh, gender – 
how much more prominent gender is as a subject in this movie. I, I, you know, it comes up occasionally in the first two, but in this third one, the expectations that they have for themselves and for each other, specifically as a man and as a woman, uh, really seems to have become contentious. And Julie Delpy feels, or sorry, <laughs> Celine feels as though. You know, she's expected to do uh, all these things for for Jesse and the kids that he ignores. And there's this great line about how you know men think they're think there's magic in the world because there are these little fairies that come and pick up their things and make their food. And he makes some crack about salad, and she points out, "Well, who do you think made that salad?" Um, so she seems to really be struggling with that. And and meanwhile, um, Jesse exhibits this kind of old man horn dog side that is not particularly apparent. It's somewhat apparent in the second one, but seems to have become more pronounced. It's almost as though as they get older, they're kind of, you know, becoming, uh, you know, more themselves or more what people expect them to be. Yeah, she's certainly angrier than she's been in either of the previous two. And she was pretty angry in the second one. She's kind of justified in her anger in the sense that, one, we learn in the course of the evening that he has indeed done to a, a a uh, girl on his book tour what he did to Celine in the second movie which is that he's he's cheated on his wife Celine by having a had a, having a fling with some girl he met on book tour in Washington DC uh, as a which it was probably a politics and prose which is makes <laughs> me feel good it's my local bookstore um, so so we've learned that he 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 is like he's totally incapable of fidelity and but she has accepted this essentially and by the end of the movie she seems to have accepted it but i actually appreciated sort of what a small part that played in their fight you know i mean you had such a a, a large sense of how many grievances they had and how much history they had that it wasn't even like the thing that undid them was the revelation that he'd had this affair and also the implication that possibly she had had one as well yeah, she's a little bit um, – I don't know if she's more coy. I mean he's coy about it. He never actually says, yes, that happened. He, he basically acknowledges it by saying, why is it important? Um, but you know, one thing worth noting I think is that they're not technically married, uh, which is another sort of little reveal. I think it happens in the – um, that little church, oh, the, the little chapel that they, they go, go into, and 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 one of them refers to you know you know our daughters want us to get married, or I can't remember if it's that they don't know that they're not married, but it just comes out that they've never actually done that. And so when it also comes out that he has clearly slept with this younger admirer in D.C. and she's maybe had a fling with an old uh, you know an, an ex of hers that. Uh, I don't know. Their relationship is not totally conventional maybe. It's not totally traditional. I, I saw that partly in terms of the fact that they had clearly chosen not to get married. That at but least, isn't that just the European way? No, you, no Europeans get married. That's just the way. <laughs> maybe. Didn't, that didn't feel to me to have freight in the way it would have if, if they were, had been American. Just like the toplessness was completely European. That was one of the most French moments of the movie where she was just oh. casually topless for about five minutes. I, I guess, Platz, you were, you were excited about that part. <laughs> Well, I, I thought it was incredibly well done. I mean, I, I, one of the problems I have with this movie, or which I'm interested in your take on, Dana, is that it seems to me that these two people are mismatched in the sense that Julie Delpy is indeed one of the most attractive women, in both intellectually, physically, in the world. And Ethan Hawke is an unappealing, wolfish slime ball. And that, <laughs> it, just comes, it just comes across. And the characters... And the, 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 to me, the, the, the most interesting part of this we haven't even talked about is the fact that he's this parasitical novelist who appears to have no good ideas, but has succeeded by writing two novels, which are, are, the, are before sunset and before sunrise, before sunrise and before sunset. That, those have been huge bestsellers basically mining his own history, mining, mining this one romantic evening that he had. Um, and otherwise, he is, he's, just a, he has, he's just a 
crummy, crappy novelist who can't do anything with it. I love and the very, very long title of his third novel after his first two, the one that doesn't include the story of their romance. It just sounded so terrible and so overambitious. Yeah, it was something like the temporary cast members of a, of a production of a play called Fleeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's stuck in my head. It is terrible. I mean, I think this this movie does poke more fun at his novelistic ambitions and at his, his artistic pretensions than the previous movies did. But he wins me over more with each one. I mean, the first one, David, I completely agree with you. I was saying, why does Ethan Hawke deserve Julie Delpy. This should not be happening. But I guess in this in this third movie, I really see that although he may not be the greatest novelist in the world, he seems like a good man. I actually like his response to the even to the to the cheating question, where he essentially says, "If the question is, am I committed to you and the girls for the rest of our lives?" The answer was a resounding yes. I was thinking, well, that that answer would satisfy me. Yeah, it's interesting because my you know I saw it with my girlfriend, and she was sort of won over by that as well, and actually seemed to find him more sympathetic than I did in this one because there's also – so there's this whole debate about, you know, he's worried that he's missing his son's childhood and that's, you know, presumably, you know, that opening scene. That's why it starts with him saying goodbye at the airport because this is the conflict later that he clearly wants to move to the U.S. I think Chicago is the city where where his wife lives with the son and wants to be close for his son's experience in high school and Celine has a, has a job that she wants to take um, – you know, back in France. And I thought that he genuinely was being passive aggressive with this argument. He sort of plants the seed but doesn't say, I want you to turn the job down. I want to move. But she picks up on that. And at first it seems as though maybe she's sort of being paranoid or defensive and assuming that's what he's asking. But by the end of the movie, it's clear that that is what he was asking the whole time. Uh, and I, you know, But he wouldn't come out and say it. So I, I don't know. I, I, this is the first of these three movies, I think, where you do come out wondering what – uh, you know who 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 did you sympathize with? You know, uh, you wow. have to pick sides I in a way. So did not feel that way, but I did not <laughs> see it. I'm neither a woman who might be or a person who might be vulnerable to the to the attractiveness of Ethan Hawke, nor a person there with my girlfriend or wife who might who might feel that way. Wait, what way did you not see it? That he that he was passive aggressively planting the oh, seed? Oh no, no, that he that that one could have ambiguity about which of them is which of them you sympathize with. He still seems to me so much less sympathetic than she is. But so then, David, I don't quite understand your love for these movies. If you feel like it's this cosmic injustice that's being done to the Julie Delpy character that she has to be with this loser, Ethan Hawke, then why do you love the movies? Do you find them romantic? It's not quite at that level. I enjoy the I enjoy the the play between the two. I think it's a it was an incredibly true depiction of the the slights and indignities of marriage and the way – the explosions that are not a non-marriage of, of long-term commitment and the way that you can get past them and, and the way these things get negotiated. I think it's very, very vivid. It's not, it's not that I don't um, – it's not that I think he is – that he is without any virtue. I mean part of it, as you say, is you have to, you have to want to see them together for this to work at all. But just if I had to – if I had to pick a team, this was if this was if this was the Twilight movies. I'm. It doesn't even seem to me there's any question that you we're all on Team Celine. Just, I guess that's no. true, but she seems like a very very difficult partner to have at the same time, right? She's really angry. She's really mercurial, and her style of arguing is, is very nasty and unfair in a way that I feel like his isn't. Right, and she's and she's uh, you know fairly neurotic as she admits herself, and at one point. He calls her the mayor of Crazy Town, and she doesn't really disagree. Uh, but there is something. I mean, David, your point raises an, another uh, conversation I had with my girlfriend after seeing this uh, third one, which is that because we've seen the first two, we want them to stay together. If you if you just watched this one, I 
I will, okay, I say that. I assume that you guys feel the same way. I mean, you're rooting for them to stay together just as you're rooting in the second one for him to stay in Paris and for them to get uh, get together for the first time. So if you just watched this movie and you didn't have that history with them, you might think, well, these these people should not be together. And But that's part of the point, I think, is that they had this – they have this kind of romantic bedrock that has um, – that is still the foundation of this relationship. So at the end of the movie, to spoil – uh, the conclusion, um, you know, she's walked down to a, a little cafe or something, uh, sitting by herself. Um, she's going to have a drink. After telling him that she doesn't, she may not love him anymore. Yes, right? that's right. She says, I, I, I don't love you anymore. And he walks out of the hotel as well and joins her and then, you know, spins this yarn. And this is what he does, right? He's a writer and he can be charming. But the point of the yarn is that he's still that guy. He's still the man that she fell in love with 18 years before. Well, and did you notice it's a callback to the time travel thing? Because the way he gets her off the train in Vienna back in the first movie is he says, I forget exactly how he frames it, but something about I'm a time traveler from the future coming back to tell you that you shouldn't should have gotten wow. off the train with that guy that night. I had forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. so it kind of it's bookended by this time travel conceit. Right, which is what all these movies are about, right? I mean, and then this is a great example of when it doesn't feel heavy handed. It does feel naturalistic. And yet the conversation picks up on the deepest themes of, of these movies, which are, you know, which is the passage of time and the way people change and the way history and, and memory affects how And transience feel. and mortality are incredibly important to all these movies, not just, you know, the, the, the middle-aged couple movie, but just back in the first one where they kick off their day right. in Vienna by visiting the, the, the cemetery of the nameless. Yeah. And in fact, their first, I can't remember if we talked about this yet, but um, the reason that she sits down next to him on the train is that there's a married couple arguing across from her and she sits down and he asks her, what are they arguing about? And then their first conversation is about the way that married couples argue. So let's talk about the very ending, the, the end of the last scene, since the, the, the ending of the second movie before sunset is, I think, justly famous as one of the great romantic movie endings of all time. I found this to be a fantastic ending, too, with, with a lot of ambiguity and surprises in it. Do you guys think that they will stay together at the end of the movie? Oh, Yes. It's, it's certainly implied, right? The, the last line of the movie. Well, they're about to have wonderful sex, apparently. I mean, According that's the, to the time traveler. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, what is it she who says, um, what is the final line? But the, the, he's, he's, you know, spilt, he's you know, uh, laid out this, this uh, tale for her about how she's about to have the most amazing night of her life. This is the, what the, the, the old uh, version of her, I think, or an old woman in this, who's a time traveler has, has explained. And she acknowledges that, uh, yes, that, you know, that is about to happen. Um, but that's a separate question. The last line, it's just, it's just when the camera starts tracking out. There's one of those other very long takes of just the two of them at the table. And then at the moment, you start to realize that she's going to be won over, which is when she says, do you need to be naked to operate this time machine? <laughs> right. Then the camera starts to, to track out very slowly. And then she says the last line, which is, I believe it must be a hell of it must have been a hell of a night we are about to have this yes. great temporal mix up. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing with verb tense that that they're doing there. But um that's a separate question, I think, from then what happens to their relationship. I mean, they're about to have a great night together. Well, but. But, well no, but see, I don't – I guess I don't think that. It's that he – first of all, it raises real questions to me about him that he is making an appeal to her on sort of sexual grounds. That, 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 that all he's – throughout the entire second half of the movie, the entire thing, the aim of it just seems to be to get laid, basically. He really, really seems focused on that. It's all about like – ending these conversations so that he can get laid and the time traveler tale now you can say there's a that there's a larger subtext he wants to get laid so that they can sort of put this fight behind them and what she seems to be doing in this is not saying we're now going to go have mind-blowing sex and then and then we're going to uh 
return to to this argument that we've had. What she seems to be saying is, okay, I'm I'm entering your story. I'm going to allow this to continue, and we're just in the way that marital fights dissipate. You allow this fight to move into the past. We're going to sort of pretend these things didn't happen. We're gonna we're not gonna. This is not gonna carry weight forever. Let's just let's just go back to the fantasy. Wow, you take such a dim view of the Ethan Hawke character, David. I, I honestly thought I really, really loved and found very sincere his his last little plea to her right before she she gives in. And I think this is what convinces her ultimately, which is and I think this is what convinces her ultimately, which is not about sex at all, which is when he says, if you want real love, this is it. Remember that? When he just sort of says, like, it's sitting here next to you and you can go to try and find look, look something for something better. I can't remember how he phrases it, but it's completely sincere and convincing. I don't I don't I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I'm but I am saying that that and that, that so that the the overt text of, of his conversation with the time traveler is mostly about getting laid and how great the sex is going to be. Right. That is the overt message he's sending. It's like the mind blowing evening you're going to have. Yes. Yeah. True. You would agree with that. Yes. And it, behind it, of course, is I'm telling you this charming story to win you over because we have this huge foundational love. Right. That's right. But but um, but he's using the the he wants the sex to get to the love. Well, yeah, and actually, it highlights something about this movie, which is just occurring to me now, which is which is how uh, entwined those things still are for them, and, and actually more so in this movie than maybe in the first two. Is that you know it, it is a an intense sexual relationship that they have, and and that comes up several times in this movie. And so you know, I, I agree with you, Dana, that he's. He's totally committed and devoted to her, and, it, and it's not just let's have sex now, but I, I want to be with you forever. Uh, but part of that is we enjoy having sex with each other. Let's do it right now. Right. I actually found it very romantic what a big role pl- sex played yeah. in this movie, as well as parenthood. I thought this was it was sort of refreshing how important being a parent was to him, you know, and that he got to have that role that's usually given to the woman of you know the the divorced parent who's so sad to be separated from their child. Yeah, and she's the one who has this job that she doesn't want to to pass up, and is really committed to work. Yeah, and because yeah, but you a, know, come on, come on. He he is a novelist who can work anywhere. They have two children together. That that you know that she needs us to raise. It makes sense. She has to be in Paris to do the work that she's doing. She gave New York a shot, and I don't know. It just it it, it seems to me obvious that they have to stay in Paris, and that it, that his. His weaselly attempt to get them to move is, is ludicrous. <laughs> well, and if his book made so much money, couldn't he get an apartment somewhere and just kind of, you know, fly there more often? I don't know. I don't have any kids. So. I would have liked to know a little bit more about the, their state of financial well-being, actually, because he talked about teaching two courses at the American school. That can't pay anything. You know, being a, a kind of green activist like she is can't pay that much. So I was sort of wondering to what extent they're struggling and, and how they live in Paris. Well, yeah, and he said that this basically the second book paid for their apartment or something. So maybe it was a bestseller, but then they spent all the money. So maybe they're not as, as, as affluent as it seems. Also, you know, this villa does belong to someone else. So the vacation seems kind of like this very kind of expensive uh, luxury. But in fact, it, you know, it's being paid for by right. someone Right. It's else, sort of a writer's retreat that he was chosen to go on, it seems like. Okay. Do, the do, other – sorry. Go ahead, David. Uh, just one small thing. Do you guys, when you mentally classify this movie as I do, I put it with 7-Up, not with other things. Is that is that really weak of me to, to place this fictional – check-in movie along with 7-Up, the 7-Up series. They no. occupy the same space in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I love those movies. And for similar reasons, the other um, series that, that comes to mind that is fictional is the Antoine Duanel movies that right. uh, Truffaut made, the first and, and best being 400 Blows. But then he made 
uh, what, four four or five yeah, others. I, think so. I mean, Maybe made several of them with the same actor playing the same character. And it actually made me, you know, I left this movie thinking, why don't why don't more filmmakers do this? I mean, I guess it's obvious why they don't because it's hard and you have to have actors who are committed to it and, and come back together. But it's so amazing just to see the passage of time. Who is it? Is it Linkletter or is it now I'm con- maybe confusing with Noah Baumbach who has m- been filming the same kid for the last 16 years? That's Linklater too. And I think that movie is maybe going to come out next year or something. I think he's almost done. Um, and I'm I thinking think, of another other filmmakers that do it is the, the Darden brothers who sort of accompanied Jeremy Renier, that little blonde boy in the in the Promise, as he grew up, and he's been in almost all of their movies, also sort of changing and aging through time. Although playing different characters, playing different characters, right? Um, yeah, I, I think maybe even Ethan Hawke is also in this other Linklater movie that has a young a young kid that he filmed a few days a year for however many years. So that leads to the obvious question, will there and should there be a a fourth movie, which I guess could only be called Before Noon. That's really the only (laughs) kind of time of day that's left to get to. Yeah, I saw somebody suggest after midnight, you know, I mean, maybe they just have to switch to switch the, what is that, a preposition? But it has to be something that two old people can do. If we're going to wait another nine years, right, they're going to be in their 50s, so we have to figure out. Do you guys know the Magic Treehouse series of books? Dana, you must have as a a mother. I know them by title, but I haven't read them. Well, they're all... um, books that transport these children back into places in history but they're they each of them has a temporal moment so it's like dragons at dawn uh uh um you know lions at lunchtime so they <laughs> and there are about 87 of them so th- they could definitely pull off 87 moments right before tea time yeah i do think they should do another, i mean i you know they should do whatever they can i i feel like these these three movies are a gift and i'm grateful for them but if they are all inclined i would love to for them to do another one and another one after that I, one of the things that struck me about this movie is that the first one it's a very dramatic setup right these two beautiful young people meet on a train in, in vienna the second one is also dramatic because you know they meet up again for the first time in nine years in paris this one is essentially an ordinary day and we know the character – I mean they're on vacation and they have a fight. But it, it, it doesn't have that kind of um, dramatic premise that the first two have. But we know the characters so well now and their history is so important to us that we can just watch them interact. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the series is that as you become involved in their lives in a way uh, – they can do less and less to make the the movie dramatic. It can just be the two of them talking. Well, so maybe a daring right. place to go for the fourth one in nine years if it exists is is a true chunk of their daily life, right? Just a quotidian day and wherever they happen to be living then. I also really hope that the character of the ex-wife, who's talked about with such hatred, come, gets to be in the next movie. That we get to hear her point of view or, or see her for a minute. We don't even know her name yet, do we? Not that I can recall. No. Do, the I... I um, of course want another movie and another movie after that, and and I the the, the first three movies have captured them at, at important stages of life. I feel like so it's it's not that it, this one is quotidian. I mean, it's quotidian in the in the fact that it's just a normal vacation day, but they are maybe it's just because they're the same age I am, where they're thinking about some of the same things that I think about day to day about sort of life and commitments and family and work obligations and all of those all of those. You know what? When, what will I fail to do because I'm doing these other things? And I feel like a, a movie that catches them nine years from now will will grapple wonderfully with the the dilemmas that the the early fifty year old faces. And then another one about as in decline as you enter physical decline and enter, enter work decline. Um, all of those things. It can go on forever. And they God could finally be an amour, right? The last one. One of them will have to finally kick it. Oh yeah. man. And when's, when's the one where Julie Delpy leaves 
<laughs> leaves Ethan Hawke for, for David uh, Plotz. For a, <laughs> a dashing middle-aged editor of a webzine. When's you, she would happen? move to the U.S. for Plotz. I would. There is Slate.fr. I would go. I would go and be a columnist for for that. <laughs> All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming to join us. And if there is another one in nine years, we all have to converge here and talk about it. That's right. Will you show up? But will you show up there? Will you be here in the room? Yeah, we're not going to exchange phone numbers. We just have to... I don't even know your last name. All right. Well, thanks, you guys, so much for joining me. And please come and spoil with me again. Definitely. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.